Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today we're going to be revisiting um, a topic that I've put out several episodes on, that is to say the Great War. So it's going to be our latest episode in that ongoing series, and I wanted to tackle a subject that people still debate over a hundred years later. And that is, whose fault was the First World War? And um, it's a very complicated topic, so I'm going to try to lay out some context and uh, and kind of sketch out the, the, the scene. I, I want to sketch out kind of what Europe was like at the time as we tackle this tough question today on Bite Sized History. The question of blame, whose fault was the First World War, can be interpreted in several ways. So I wanted to just outline how I'm going to tackle this subject, how this episode is going to be structured. The way I see it, there are three essential kind of ways of explaining how the First World War started in terms of blame. So you could blame it on causes, you could blame it on countries, or you could blame it on people. Now, when I talk about causes, these are like grand historical patterns that had taken hold in Europe, and um, history classes will will hammer this point home. So things like militarism, that is um, the willingness to use force to uh, enact governmental policy, but militarism was more than that. It was the idea that war was glorious, war was good, war made people strong, war trimmed weakness out of the country by by eliminating the weak, stuff like that. Like, that's that's militarism. Um, And this was, uh, you know, the stereotype of this is Germany, but this was not unique to Germany. Uh, Militarism was all over Europe. Um, from the British army, you know, with decades, if not centuries of colonial adventures, or the French army, you know, living with the legacy of Napoleon. Um, you know, even the, the Austro-Hungarian army, uh, Austria-Hungary, the, also known as the Habsburg Empire. I mean, the Habsburgs have been around for centuries, so a lot of combat, a lot of conflict. Another one is international alliances, and uh, this is interestingly described by Barbara Tuckman in The Guns of August as a pile of sabers, and uh, you couldn't remove one saber without everything collapsing. So in the years leading up to the First World War, there emerged a complicated web of alliances between the competing powers, and what that meant was that any localized conflict, as we're about to see, so a disturbance in the Balkans, just blows up and pulls everybody in, whether they want to be pulled in or not. Um, So militarism, uh, alliances, another one was nationalism. And um, I'm not sure if if this is uh, maybe the best definition of it, but my personal opinion of nationalism when I explain it to people is like, well, what do you think a patriot is? A patriot is uh, someone who loves their country, right? Although... (laughs) Noted scholar Bertrand Russell has an amazing quote on patriotism. He said, 
patriotism is the willingness to kill or be killed for the most trivial of reasons. So I'm just paraphrasing a little bit, but that's just very interesting. Now, the way I've always imagined nationalism is it's like patriotism on steroids. It's like a patriot is, I love my country. My country is great. Whereas a nationalist is like, no, I love my country. My country is great. My country is better than all other countries. And I will fight anyone who threatens my country. Like, it's just to the nth degree. So those are that's just like a general outline of causes. Um, but that's not how I wanted to tackle this subject. The issue of blame for the First World War, I wanted to look at countries. So which country is to blame for the First World War? Um, and in my opinion, there's pretty much four candidates that I would say. But first, let's uh, sketch out a little bit of what Europe was like in 1914 when the war started. Some of the very first episodes of Bite-Sized History dealt with this question of the First World War. So what was Europe like in 1914? But let's sketch out a brief little map here. Uh, when the war started in 1914, Europe was divided into two camps, uh, two kind of opposing sets of alliances that had taken form over the previous decades. Um, when Germany was formed in 1871, so Germany at the time before that didn't exist. Uh, it, you know, you had German speaking kingdoms, uh, like Austria, Bavaria, uh, Prussia, stuff like that. This guy comes along, Otto von Bismarck, and they fight a war with the French, uh, the Franco-Prussian War, and the Prussians win, and then the German Empire is declared. Now, this guy, Otto von Bismarck, was very, very intelligent. Like, he was also known as the Iron Chancellor. The Iron Chancellor. So he was essentially the creator of modern Germany, and he took a good hard look at Germany, what they were capable of, who they were, but most importantly, their neighbors. And he came to the conclusion that he's like, well, we have three main rivals. You have the British, the French, and the Russians. And I think we can survive um, by fighting two of them, but we can't handle fighting all three of them. And at the time that he came to that conclusion, he pretty much bet on Russia. He's like, that's the one we have to bring on board uh, because of this huge land border and they just have so much land and so many people. So his idea was in, in the uh, decades following the Franco-Prussian War, he formed the Drei Kaiserbund, the League of Three Emperors, which was basically like this rough alliance between Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia. Drei in German means three, Kaiser means emperor, and Bund means like union or, uh, or league or something like that. Now that was established in 1873. His goal for this was to prevent tensions on the continent. And it's actually very interesting because in 1888, uh, so a little while later, he's even quoted as saying, uh, quote, one day the great European war will come out of some 
damned foolish thing in the Balkans, end quote. So it's, <laughs> it's almost like he saw in the future. So by this point, you're probably thinking, oh, wow, okay, so Bismarck's a pretty smart guy. Um, they formed an alliance with Austria-Hungary in 1879 called the Dual Alliance. But there were people in Germany, the upper echelons of the German leadership, that were kind of uh, maybe not so much on board uh, with this idea. I cannot remember which German official uh, said this. It might have been Bismarck, but he was quoted as saying... Um, we have tied our trim frigate to a worm-eaten galleon. So it's like you have this new, lean, ambitious German state. And uh, some Germans, you know, the upper levels of the leadership saw like, well, well why are we tying ourselves to this like old declining empire? But uh, I'm not going to go too much into that. But uh, at this point, uh, Bismarck's dream is kind of coming true. Now, you had this Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II. Uh, in my own personal opinion, this guy was an idiot. Uh, he was just brutal and forceful, and I think he had a huge uh, inferiority complex. Um, he decides to dismiss uh, uh, Bismarck in 1890. So Bismarck loses his job, and he gets replaced by this guy called Leo von Caprivi, um, appointed by this new Kaiser Wilhelm II. And the time of Kaiser Wilhelm from 1890 to, you know, tw it's, it's basically 25 years almost, from 1890 when Bismarck loses his job to the outbreak of war in 1914, Wilhelm just pursued this, like, aggressive, militaristic, forceful foreign policy that just really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way like he 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 believed in weltpolitik which is world politic he he thought that germany uh was not getting the respect and the prestige that it deserved from the other great powers and he wanted germany to have this is a famous quote uh, a place in the sun so he dreamed of this German colonial empire and, and stuff like that. And through a series of colonial conflicts, including the first and second Moroccan crisis, which is, well, I'm not going to go too far into depth about that, but basically all you need to know is like in the early 20th century, uh, the Germans kept challenging French sovereignty over Morocco and um you know, troops were rushed out, uh, the countries were put on high alert, soldiers were moved to the borders, uh, Germany sent a gunboat to Morocco to enforce its policy, and then a few days later, an even bigger gunboat and all this stuff. So basically, all you need to know is like, they're, they're starting, there's a wedge that's being driven by Wilhelm's aggressive policies between his German empire, and especially the French and the British. Um, the Dry Kaiserbund, the arrangement that Germany had with Russia was allowed to lapse. It was not renewed by Kaiser Wilhelm. So, by 1894, Russia actually signs an alliance with France. And at the time, this was just seen as incredibly strange. You have France, the French Republic, I believe it was the, uh, the Third Republic. Um, you know, the most liberal, kind of democratic progressive country in Europe, signing an alliance with the most autocratic, old school, you know, a lot of times scholars use the word backwards, uh, but I wonder sometimes if Russia was as backwards as people said, but definitely old school, conservative, autocratic. And they signed an alliance just because of their mutual fear of Germany. So 
at this point, we're getting into the, the 20th century, and um, so you have Germany and Austria-Hungary on one side, and this emerging kind of coalition on the other side to oppose this ascendant Germany, uh, which eventually, in 1904, France and Britain had an agreement. It wasn't a formal alliance, but it was called the Entente Cordiale. So entente is French and it means understanding and cordial means cordial. <laughs> so it was a cordial, it was almost like a, a gentleman's agreement between the British and the French. And that was solidified three years later with the triple entente. So the triple understanding where they basically invited in Russia um, to join them again to kind of, I was going to use the word contain, uh, which is definitely the way the Germans saw it. They saw it as Ankreisung, like encirclement. Uh, and this paranoia, this kind of vicious militarism, this suspicion is one of the things that, uh, that drove them to war in 1914. So that's just a brief outline of the system of alliances. Now, Austria-Hungary, like I said, was allied with Germany. The Ottoman Empire had not taken sides. There had been strong diplomatic efforts from the French, the British, and the Germans, uh, especially the Germans. They were trying to win over the Ottoman Empire. One of the ways they did this was the proposed Berlin to Baghdad Railway. They offered to uh, build this long, ambitious railway, stuff like that. Italy was still on the fence. Italy technically had an arrangement with uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary, but when the war broke out, they actually did not join the Central Powers, which is what Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire eventually uh, became known as. And one reason historians have speculated is because this arrangement uh, was intended for defensive wars only. And Italy made the political argument that, well, no, like Germany, you attacked France and, and all that stuff. But I'm not gonna get too deeply into that. I just wanted to sketch out kind of the two opposing camps in 1914. Now let's take a brief look at the summer of 1914 when an assassination in the Balkans somehow led to a global war that pulled into, you know, pulled in all the major powers and killed millions of people and destroyed four empires and pretty much rewrote the history and set the tone of the 20th century. But, uh, well, I guess that gives you a little impression as to the scale of this. I'm going to hit you with eight dates that take place June, July, and August. So if you're you're listening listening closely, this is just like a brief outline, the, the bare bones of what happened. How did this war start? On the 28th of June, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire gets assassinated in Sarajevo. Um, for a more detailed description of what happened, you can listen to, I believe it's the very first episode uh, of this series. But basically, he was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. At this time, the Austro-Hungarian uh, emperor, Franz Josef, was super old. Like, he was in his 80s or something, very conservative, did not budge an inch. And some historians have speculated that this intense conservatism and unwillingness to change... Uh inflamed the various nationalist movements in his empire and contributed to instability. Like, basically, he didn't evolve with the times. But anyway, Franz Ferdinand himself was actually more of a moderate. And uh, again, some historians have speculated that may have been 
another reason why he was assassinated. It wasn't just that he was the heir to the throne, but by killing the one moderate guy who wanted to deal with the Serbs, it's like, well, you know, that'll just leave the hardliners and we'll get the war that we want because Serbia was agitating for greater independence from the Austro-Hungarians and the Austro-Hungarians were fighting for the very opposite. They wanted to dominate their regional rival in the Balkans, uh, Serbia. So the 28th of June, this guy gets shot by 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip in the streets of Sarajevo, and he is dead, and his wife is dead. Now, this was a huge deal um, because it's true that political assassinations at this time were not uncommon, and uh, even when this happened, uh, originally there were observers around the world that were like, well, you know, like this happens all the time. But he was the heir to the throne, uh, and that's that's a big deal. Um, a few days later, so Austria, the Austrian leadership at this point is outraged. Um, basically, their view of the Serbs was, you've been agitating for years, uh, you're stirring up, you know, terrorist movements in our country, you're attacking our public officials, you just murdered our archduke like uh, the heir to our throne and whereas the serbs are like no this is a this is a national liberation movement so the austrians originally wanted to come down hard on the serbians uh the serbs um with what we'll see is a comparatively moderate approach compared to what comes later now before they do anything they talk to their allies the germans and they ask them hey what should we do and this is one of the most critical events of what's called the July Crisis. Um, this is going to be July 5th and 6th of 1914. They receive what's called a blank check from the German Empire, from uh, the Kaiser. Now, what this means is, you know, a blank check is like, well, you sign it and then the other person fills in the amount. And uh, so this was the political equivalent. The Germans basically said to the Austro-Hungarians, we will support you no matter what you do, like no conditions, which is, oh, geez, that is a big part. That is a big component of the Germany is to blame argument <laughs> for the First World War. But what this does is it greatly emboldens the Austro-Hungarians. Like it, it gives them so much more forcefulness and confidence in themselves to be like, oh, hmm, we have this Balkan crisis, we have a dead Archduke, and now the German Empire is saying no matter what we do, they're gonna support us. So this might be our chance to really crush Serbia once and for all. So what they do, is they send, the, the Austro-Hungarians send an ultimatum to Serbia. And uh, it's basically uh, do this or else. And um, I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about this ultimatum. So let's just take a minute to talk about this ultimatum that the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire gave to the Serbs. So, they basically came, came to the conclusion, all right, okay, Serbia, um, take a look at this ultimatum, and uh, if you agree to <laughs> all 10 points, then it'll be fine, but if not, then we're gonna have problems. The first point was basically to suppress 
every publication which shall incite to hatred and contempt of the monarchy. So basically crush all anti-Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, newspapers and stuff like that. Uh, They wanted to crush uh, Serbian um, populist groups. The third point is... (laughs) To eliminate without delay from public instruction in Serbia everything, whether connected with the teaching core that serves or may serve to nourish propaganda. So, like, stop saying propaganda about us. Uh, To remove, this is the fourth point, all the guilty officers. The fifth one, to agree to the cooperation in Serbia of the organs of the imperial and royal government in suppression of the subversive movement. Then, six, to institute a judicial inquiry against every participant in the conspiracy. Uh, The organs of the imperial and royal government delegated for this purpose will take part in the proceedings held for this purpose. Uh Uh-oh, this is a big one. I'll get to that in a second. To undertake with all haste the arrest of uh, these two guys, these Serbian uh, officials, uh, to prevent the participation of Serbian authorities in the smuggling of weapons and to make explanations concerning the unjustifiable utterances of high Serbian functionaries, da-da-da, and to inform the imperial and royal government without delay of the execution of the measures comprised in the foregoing points. Now, that's a lot of words, uh, but why is that important? So... The kind of general consensus of scholars and academics about this 10-point ultimatum was that it was so severe, so strict, so like dropping the hammer on Serbia that it was just unacceptable. And it was deliberately crafted that way by the Austro-Hungarian Empire in order to crush Serbia and give them a reason for war. Now, this was on July 24th. Um, The ultimatum was actually, the date on is the 22nd, but um, Serbia had a bit of time to respond. So, if you're this small country and this huge empire is coming after you and they give you this, this... crazy ultimatum to the shock and surprise of the world the serbs actually agreed to nine out of the ten points the only one that they said no unacceptable is allowing austro-hungarian agents and the government to come into serbia and pretty much conduct the investigation themselves which would essentially equate to a complete loss of serbian sovereignty So we can see now, okay, hmm, we have the assassination, we have the blank check, we have the ultimatum. The Serbian response, uh, again, you know, they, because of this one point, they, they say, no, this ultimatum is unacceptable, which again, a lot of people are like, aha, that's exactly what Austria-Hungary wanted. So on July 28th, Austria declares war on Serbia. And in response to this, Russia mobilizes. And you might be saying, hey, wait a minute, like, where's Russia coming from? The Serbs were Slavs, Slavic people. They were South Slavs. There's also, you know, Western Slavs and Eastern Slavs. But uh, all you need to know is uh, the Slavic peoples of Europe uh, are people like Czechs, Poles, Ukrainians, uh, Serbs, Croatians, Russians, like all sorts of people like that. Now, Russia, as the biggest, baddest Slavic power on the block, they pretty much saw it as their duty to defend all Slavs in Europe. Um, you know, they were kind of like the, the patron power of, of European Slavic peoples. And and this was not a secret to Austria-Hungary or Germany. Like, they, they knew. They knew that Russia would, would most likely intervene. Now, 
There was also arguments about it wasn't just about pan-Slavism, which is like how they describe this. Like, ah, we must defend our brother Slavs. It was also about, you know, uh, Russian commerce, Russian merchants, uh, influence in the Black Sea, stuff like that. Uh, Russia was basically competing for influence in the Balkans against the Austro-Hungarians and against the Ottoman Empire. But what you need to know is Russia mobilizes. August 1st, Germany declares war on Russia. August 3rd, Germany declares war on France. August 4th, Germany invades Belgium. And in response to this, the British Empire declares war on Germany. August 6th, Austria-Hungary declares war on Russia and Serbia declares war on Germany. So it's just like boom, 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 boom. And uh, Dan Carlin, uh, great historian. He's got an incredible podcast series on the First World War called The Blueprint for Armageddon. He describes this as the doomsday machine, where this is something that historians often talk about is how much power did politicians, officials, uh, generals, stuff like that actually have to stop the process once the switch had been flipped? So I hit you with a bunch of dates. Let's just talk about it briefly. August 1st, Germany declares war on Russia. Well, why did they do this? This was in response to Russian mobilization. Um, Russia was preparing to intervene in the Balkans and support Serbia against Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary had an alliance with Germany, so Germany decides to step in. Now, there was something called the Schlieffen Plan. So the Germans had been ready for this. They had uh, the very upper levels of the German leadership had been anticipating a general European war for a long time now. There was this guy, Count von Schlieffen, he was a uh, military thinker, powerful general in the German Empire. Uh, by this point, he was actually dead, which is interesting because some people afterwards said that when this crisis started, it was actually a dead man who had his hand on the trigger because the plan he put in place was basically the doomsday plan. It was like the contingency plan of what happens if Germany has to go to war. Now, the plan was to smash West, knock out France in six weeks before Russia has time to mobilize. Then we can deal with the Russians. Um, they saw Russia as just having way more soldiers than France, and the border was a lot more porous and stuff like that. But they saw, you know, the Russians as backwards, and it would take them a long time to mobilize. So that's why by August 1st, Germany declares war on Russia. Now, two days later, as part of the Schlieffen Plan, they declared war on France. Oh, geez, like their old rival from, you know, the Franco-Prussian War. There was even bad blood between Germans and French dating back to the Napoleonic Wars. As part of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, there were two provinces between them on the franco uh German border called Alsace and Lorraine in the old days, like in the Middle Ages, it used to be part of something called Burgundy. Uh, but anyway, the French had lost these provinces and the Germans were convinced that they would be obsessed with getting them back. Now, this turned out to be true because the French had their own plan pour la guerre, like for the war. It was called Plan 17. And basically, it was in the event of a general war, we're going to smash into the Alsace-Lorraine frontier and we're going to take our provinces back. Uh, this was an example of uh, revanchisme, like uh, kind of the, the desire for revenge. The Germans, of course, knew this was going to happen. So, hmm, the Franco-German border is heavily fortified. How do we, the Germans, get into France? Well, their idea was to just uh, steamroll through neutral Belgium. Uh, and we're going to go through there. So if the French go right, 
we're gonna go left like from the french point of view so but from the german point of view the french attack our left we go right uh, it helps if you're looking at a map you'll know exactly what i mean now the british empire had a treaty with belgium dating back to 1839 that uh, they swore to defend belgian neutrality but the kaiser was like no they will not go to war for a scrap of paper. So that's what he called the treaty. He said, no, they're not. It's a scrap of paper. And come on, it's decades old. Like, they're not going to do that. But there were people in the British government that said, no, like this is our word. And if we don't respect this treaty, like what does it say about the trustworthiness of the British Empire? There were also people who said, well, if we don't go to war and uh, Germany rampages all over the continent, then you know, if we're scared of their power now, imagine how strong they're going to be if they cross, if they beat France, if they beat Russia or whatever. There was a substantial movement in the British cabinet that said, no, we should not go to war. We have our empire and we can stay out of this European conflict. But anyway, there's all sorts of stuff for uh, another conversation. August 4th, they invade Belgium as part of this. And August 6th, the kind of doomsday machine uh, <laughs> just keeps on rolling. Austria-Hungary declares war on Russia. So they're like, okay, fine. Like, if you're going to support Serbia, and if you're going to start fighting our, our buddies, the Germans, then we're going to fight you. And one of the ways they would fight is because they had a common frontier was Galicia. It was, uh, it was one of those Polish regions. Like, Poland didn't have a country at this point. It was pretty much carved up between Austria-Hungary, the German Empire, and the Russian Empire. And actually, a lot of the fighting on the Eastern Front is going to happen in what later became Poland. And also on August 6th, Serbia declares war on Germany. So, bada bing, bada boom, the whole thing is settled. Everybody's fighting everybody. Okay, so I didn't want this episode to go too long, so that's going to do it for us here today. I wanted to set the stage and... In following episodes, we're going to talk about, like I teased in the intro, kind of the four main candidates, in my opinion, as to whose fault the world, uh, the First World War was exactly. And uh, I'll just tell you right now, uh, in my opinion, it's the German Empire, uh, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Serbia. That's kind of, and from what I've found, that's kind of the general consensus. We are going to talk about kind of how much blame did the British have or how much blame did uh, the French have? But in, in my opinion, those are like the four major candidates. And if really, you know, if I really had to trim it down to just two, it would be, I think, the biggest uh, candidates for, you know, the blame of starting the war would either be the Germans or the Russians. And uh, but that'll become clear in, in following episodes. So I, I don't want to like lay on too much right now. In any case, that'll do it for today. This has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to Bite Sized History Podcast at gmail.com. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends. Thank you so, so much. Goodbye.